Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is part two of a three-part series of our interview with Jordan Daniel Wood. Jordan describes then Maximus's formula. He explains creation is incarnation. And we also discuss then the notion of the fall as at the beginning and the implications then of creation ex nihilo. If you enjoy these podcasts, please like us on social media and point others then to Forging Plowshares and Plowshares Bible Institute. And may, maybe the step that Bear makes, it, it's almost necessary to get over the whole notion of the Logos as the pre-incarnate Christ. Mm-hmm. Once you do that, then you're all, then you're prepared to read Origin and to understand Maximus. That is doing what you're describing, that this mystery that is opened to us in Christ is not some, in some way, we're not cut off from it because of some pre-incarnate transcendent category. No, this is the mystery revealed, you know, the incarnation. I mean, that's captured in the formula. It's there in your book. It's there in your dissertation. Creation is incarnation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's there I, a little bit. I'd like you to go back, and I, we kind of passed over it very quickly, and I'm not com- claiming I understand it completely. And that is this notion of the fall at the very beginning, but also then there is a kind of eternality. Origin, as I understand it, there there is a beginning. Mm-hmm. There is creation ex nihilo. But, of course, his understanding of that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Yeah, but you can't get before the beginning. The beginning is really the beginning, that we're not dealing with categories outside of creation or outside of the cosmos. Because for origin, the beginning is Jesus Christ. He makes that very clear. Yeah. So the first subsection of that fourth chapter I mentioned, it's called Adam's Two Beginnings. Here's where things get wild, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, they've been wild for a while, but this is where it gets... But it's also it's where things get very much into the integration of, like, theology and spirituality because, you know, after all, Maximus is a monk. You know, he's dealing with... He's receiving of Agrius on the passions and the thoughts and all these other things, and they're highly sophisticated reflections on the spiritual life, the day-to-day stuff. But the way I put it there is... is well, I try to, at least, is... um. Exactly what you just said, Matt. Also for for Matt, for Maximus, the only true beginning of Adam and and actually by extension of all creation is Jesus. Which again is something stated in the New Testament <laughs> in Colossians one and uh Revelation three fourteen, Jesus calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's the firstborn of all creation. Uh it says in Ephesians two ten, you were created in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so not this principle prior to Christ Jesus or mm. above him, but in him and in other, other parts that John bear often likes to quote too. This is, this is the challenge. And that's, that's really another way to state what I try to do in that fourth chapter is say, do we actually know what creation is? 
I mean, isn't that where isn't that where origin, if memory serves, when he's talking about uh, that Jesus is the beginning? I believe that's in his commentary on Genesis. Exactly. Yep. Yes, and and he does it again. I think a version of that in commentary on John, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. John one. One way to think of it, this there's several different approaches I think you could take. One is to say we can make a kind of abstract point, right? Almost like a philosophical point. The true beginning not only doesn't need to begin like every other beginning, but really can't. So if if something is the beginning of all beginnings, by necessity, it really ought to appear in a pretty unique way. You know, say like in the middle of what seems to us like the middle of all things rather than at the beginning of the series. Well, since it's the very principle of the series, it's not constrained to begin at the beginning of the series in a kind of sequential way. Right. It's it, otherwise. It's otherwise. We're already reducing it implicitly to just a typical, uh, you know, beginning that you know, like the beginning of this day, the beginning of tomorrow, the beginning of this hour, or minute, or thought, or sentence. Um, but of course, it isn't that if it's the true beginning, and yet it has to emerge. It has to emerge. It has to be a point of contact between the created world and that which is the the you know the beginning. And actually, Ariugena a thinker who knew Maximus well later, I won't get into his stuff, but he does this brilliantly in book uh, three of his Periphysion, and he's citing Maximus and integrating him. He translated Maximus into Latin. And so, you know, his point there is that the nothing whence creation comes really needs to be God. Either, because if it's pure negation, then it means nothing ever began. There is no prior, right? And that's usually what most people think, which is a fine logical point. That's true. There's nothing prior, like like pre, like like eternal matter or something, right? That God mm-hmm. has to contend with and mold us into or from. But the but the, but then the but the question is still open. But how is God the cause? What is the link between God as source of all being and being? Is it just? I mean, source and you know cause and effect is already a kind of logical relationship, and it's one we pretty much understand and we apply to every phenomenon we see that has a causal connection. So anyway, we can do this kind of like philosophical point, right? And say like, well, look, the beginning, capital B, if you, if it, as it were, capital B beginning really ought not to be to eat, to present itself as beginning in the way just that every other small B beginning does. Otherwise, right. you've just simply reduced it conceptually to a small B beginning and then you're looking around for it, right? right. Which would, which is already problematic. But that's a kind of philosophical, metaphysical sort of point, and it's still kind of a negative point. It's sort of just saying it ought not to be like other beginnings. The question still remains, what is it like, in fact, right? positively? Mm -hmm. This is where I think you get into the theological point. And we can do this, just let's reduce it, let's bracket for now all of creation, because I think we get sometimes get distracted by the great... (laughs) You know, unfolding and the the man, you know, the age after age after age. Let's just talk about Jesus's flesh, which is created after all, right? And it's created from nothing, I would think, if it's a true created reality. It doesn't exist except as Christ. I mean, the technical way that the later controversy said would you know we'll put it would say it, that his flesh is in hypostasizing him. But that doesn't that what that means is like given subsistence, giving its very existence, its concrete reality in and as him. It's not like it's there in some kind of virtual state and it's persisting in that state for a while, and then you modulate it at the point that of the of the you know of the uh, of Mary's let it be unto me, O Laura, the Annunciation, and all of a sudden now 
what was a virtual flesh that may or may not exist, although a lot of the- theologies would think this way, but it, it, that all of a sudden now it's a given being because Mary said, yeah, go, go ahead and let's do this, you know. And now it's tra- because we're uh, we're kind of actually making the same mistake as we were with the capital B beginning and the little B beginnings, which is we're already assuming a fairly intuitive and really uncomplicated transition from non-being flesh of Christ to being flesh of Christ, the being you know, the, the, which really is it's conceived in Mary and so forth by the Holy Spirit. But that's not really what it means for Christ to take on or make or give himself to his self as the very subsistence of his flesh it means he becomes the thing he makes in a way in his person now i mean you know obviously chalcedon the natures themselves if you think about them are distinct in fact maximus they're absolutely distinct because by definition they're distinct which means you couldn't modulate either one say to make one into the other without destroying the very principle which differentiates it and allows you to recognize it as a certain kind of thing at all created versus uncreated eternal you know temporal versus eternal mm-hmm. finite versus infinite right so these things are in principle in their natural principle the delineation of the kind of being they are now i understand that the divine be- being is beyond being and beyond kinds of being but again even a negation is a sort of delimitation but i won't go down that route, route right now but like so I'm just saying that, you know, Chalcedon, two natures, they're distinct. So you're not you're not messing with the natures. So there's some other further dimension of reality, what what they call the person or the hypothesis or the subsistence, the who of Jesus rather than his what mm. or what's. That on that level, they can and actually must be one in the same thing, even to be distinct at all in fact. So when Christ, when when the Son of God, quote unquote, and I'm already saying when, and that's already to misspeak, but when the incarnation occurs, it's not just that the Son of God assumes flesh, which is different from his humanity, but he becomes the flesh in his person that differs from his own divinity, which to quote Maximus means, quote, the Son comprises the interval between the extremes within himself. So he not only makes real the humanity he makes real in himself already in his identity overcome as it were in his identity on the level of person he makes real the very opposition or difference between his two natures in himself so what i just described there was was also creation from nothing Mm. because the flesh of christ is created in fact it bears a lot of the same qualities of fallen creation to to be a little more provocative i mean eventually it could die Mm -hmm. the wages of sin is death so that is a kind of different if you blow that up now and say well what if the entire world is that everything that comes into being is god becoming what he loves and thereby generating it by giving his own person his own being to that which in and of itself so that's another sense of nothing in and of itself it has no thing that could sustain it so the way then cause and effect we're now starting to understand it is different than the way we started before it seemed pretty easy just to say well god is sort of there and he says i want to create something an effect the world you me a tree whatever everything all at once i want to create that and i want to effect it and that's a pretty unproblematic relationship that we typically see you know if i kick this table over i can see what the cause is and the effect 
but that's but that's already we know from like philosophy and metaphysics that can't really be what it's like and so you get all the stuff about the sustaining cause and how he's really every moment's creation from nothing and but i think those are all still negative formulations when you get to the positive ones when you start to see as i think maximus does that maybe actually the way god creates a nature which which is at once sourced only in him but also is infinitely by nature different from him is precisely the way he did it in mary mm. because that's the same thing that happened there and this starts to make sense even of and i don't want to jump too far ahead and i don't want to like you know drag us all around but you can start to see why and i'll just throw this out and i'll stop you can start to see why Maximus think starts to see that the incarnation of God is the flip side of the deification of man. Because now, if God becomes the very thing which by nature differs from his, his own divinity infinitely even, or you know, absolutely in Maximus's terms, but the, but the flip side is that therefore being by nature created, therefore finite, therefore infinitely different from God, is no longer an actual barrier from becoming, as he says in Ambiguum 10, uncreated. Because precisely the uncreated, in the person of the Word, the second person of the Trinity, can become by nature what it is not infinitely in its divinity. And so now being created is no longer a barrier that excludes you from the actual living God, who in the Son of God, by the Holy Spirit, by the will of the Father, is by nature human, just as much as he is by nature divine. So being human no longer is a barrier to becoming fully divine. So hence, and this is the part I'll rest it at, Maximus is famous for, and it's another formulation that comes up over and over and over and over and over again in his writings that and people note it, but it's like, have we really thought through it? He often likes to say of our deification that we will become God to the same degree that God became man. Well, what degree is that? Well, as he says in question 60.2, perfect identity in every way, humanity with divinity. What does that mean conceptually? Well, I mean... <laughs> It can't really be caught conceptually precisely because the only true identity is a person and persons aren't reducible to any predicate or concept. So it, it does open up to a mystical sort of theology. Mm -hmm. It does open up to a spirituality that, and I know I've gotten, Paul, I've gotten quite a ways from your question about the fall. Oh. We can return to that more explicitly. But it but it does open up to this life that says, as he says, how one he says in the exposition on the Lord's Prayer, he says virtue becoming virtuous or you might say becoming like christ is actually at the same time christ being born in your soul so that he says quote the word of god can make even your soul another virgin mother of god theotokos <laughs> right and it's because your becoming like god is also god being born in you and now we're getting to eckhart territory where he says mm -hmm. all this too um, but anyway, so so you start to see the absolute, not just entanglement, but they're two sides of the exact same coin, or they're two dimensions of the same movement, deification and incarnation, and and it's and therefore it's the same degree on both sides because, right, in him he comprises the interval between the extremes in himself. Mm -hmm. So that means you. It doesn't matter what extreme you're on. You it doesn't bar you from actual interpersonal and indeed mystical identity or relation 
reunion or all of that with God. I mean, that's the that's the sort of whole thing there. That so. that raises lots of questions. Let me let me take a stab at. I was just going to say, Paul, man, you really should have read that chapter. <laughs> you really should have missed that. out. I got to <laughs> yeah. I got to get that. The chapter. whole. I said it was the whole. No, oh kidding. yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> Oh, um, let me let me take a, a stab at what I'm picturing of as, as the the fall having it's almost there in the beginning, right? And that is that we're actually dealing with that right now in the in the notion of a uh, theo, theosis or deification. The creation ex nihilo actually opens creation to the possibility of evil. Yeah that is shut down that is you know by this cosmic and and I, that's what i'm seeing in paul again and again and what's you know what maximus is describing that we've often missed out on is that what we're describing is cosmic salvation christ becoming all in all this you know end of the incarnation in creation is closing down the possibility of a return to nothing which is the fall yes uh, the the fall then that evil and sin then are taken care of or or defeated in the the fulfillment of the incarnation is that yes. am i hitting close yeah yes there's i'm trying to think of which angle i want to choose to come at it with because i resonate completely with that you know, let's just start with this point, and I, I and I think it might sound mundane. You guys probably already know this, but let's just say it. Fundamentally, salvation means preservation. You know, and the phrase you used, Paul, about sort of overcoming the nothingness, right? The fall—that that is the process of what you said, cosmic salvation. And so, I think it, it can sound like a kind of yeah, okay, like literally the Greek, you know, means that. So, zen is to right is to preserve like you can use it to preserve fruit from from decay or you know you put it in the fridge we, we we do that even now i'm going to save this for later what do you do you put it in the refrigerator so it saves it preserves it in its state of salutary you can eat it what are you saving it from death decay right breaking down deterioration and so you have to put it in a certain condition and so Maximus does this a lot. I track it with with his language, and he uses the the normal Greek term, you know, say sozin all the time for when he's doing Christology. And he says uh, he'll say things like, "Well, God, of course." Um, like like one formulation I like, he says, uh, "When God becomes man, he does not change because divinity, you know, in his divinity, he's unchangeable. But he also pre doesn't change, but rather preserves. You might just say saves what he becomes when he becomes human." for he is a lover of humankind and a lover right doesn't destroy what it becomes it actually preserves it in its becoming now i say all that because it's actually crucial to see then why the beginning the quote-unquote phenomenological or even sequential beginning of creation is precisely not yet the preserved whole of the work of god and insofar as it's not it's in a sense a falling away from that true or as you said sort of the overcoming of the nothing the other point to make and this is this is another point that's often made in maximus scholarship but i don't feel like it's brought together so clearly with with the fall thing is that maximus also is committed to the idea that nothing exists unless it's in motion and you know there's different senses of motion and we and, and he even knows that you know obviously quantum hasn't happened but like 
Um, well, it's happened, but it hasn't been a science. It, you know, but he's he's already you know quite aware metaphysically. There's all kinds of motion. There's the motion of the mind. There's motion. There's local motion. There's all these other. But he doesn't have anything like a um, like an actual neutral state that is sort of static and not moving in one direction or the other. But a consequence of that, I mean, so for the very by the very fact you created, as Irenaeus already said, by the very fact you created and have a beginning, you're already moving. Because you're not one with the thing from which you come. And so you're already sort of in motion from existing. But I think what Maximus sees further is that means you have to be moving either towards or away from from true creation, which is deification. And so if you put these two, two things together, we have preservation of the whole is God becoming the whole. Because he doesn't preserve in any other way. He doesn't do it from a distance. He does it in true love. And if he does it in true love, that means he becomes and therefore preserves the very thing he becomes. Which is why for Maximus the Chalcedon distinction of natures is so crucial. It's not to be an historian, far from it. Right? He's he's trying to resist that interpretation of Chalcedon in favor of Cyril's emphasis on the oneness, this one subject. But but then but that leads him to as almost dialectically, if if you will, it it, it leads him to say. But that's precise, the kind of oneness, the kind of unity effected in and as the person of the word is the very same oneness which preserves the distinction of natures. And in its preserving, it makes it and finishes it and forms it. Why is that important? Because, and here's the, the uh, a final factor I'll throw in here to kind of build this fall from the beginning sort of picture. God doesn't become, especially when it comes to the spirits created spirits and other persons he doesn't become anything apart from the ascent and the mutual love and the invitation of the ones that he wishes to become and so that means there's a process and that means that process is the dynamism of the spiritual life and the growing in love and in virtue and in prayer and in struggling with god and in struggling for god to become incarnate in you as he says in Question twenty two point eight. He becomes and he becomes man again and again, and the ones are worthy of it. But he doesn't do it automatically, and that is an initial. It might seem like an initial difference from his his own flesh, right? His own flesh isn't talking back to him, except of course for Maximus that it has a will. So there's this weird paradox with his human willing is actually in fact. But that's in a certain way. That's the whole life of Christ is the sort of bringing together of the two wills, and therefore affecting. The deified humanity but also his body is is everything it's not confined to that to that uh, scope alone but there's the other point about the incarnate historical incarnation is that it's mary who who is announced that the incarnation is going to happen and she through her own freedom and will and humility accepts the incarnation let it be done unto me as you say so actually the christ is born in a meeting of two free wills who freely assent knowingly exactly what it is that they are willing together as, as one desire, which is that the, the, the that God himself would be born in her. That's the model of the Christian life, in my opinion. That's the goal. That's what the, the process. But it's also creation. That is also the way creation unfolds. And, and, and that's the true, that's, now I'm getting at the true creation. So what, again, the, all of this is different ways to, I think, challenge what we think we know creation is. Creation is the setting of the stage. And then you have the drama right unfolding and we're all just sort of characters and god can sometimes 
act sort of as it were outside as the author who speaks in sometimes but then he becomes a character and then that's good because you can get to know him better listen to his message you believe in him and you follow him and then sort of there's this nice denouement at the end at least for certain people and then for a lot of other people it's not so nice but nevertheless it ends right and that's creation is that creation is like the conditions the stage the theater within which this drama unfolds not what well why think that Creation is actually a work of God, which means it's not yet God's creation until it fully expresses everything God wills. But one of the things God wills is for you to come to will your own existence. So that's where it gets really weird. And I also unpack that in that fourth chapter, because oh. all of this is setting up a kind of what I think I call in there the dilemma of creation, which is on the one hand, you've got Irenaeus's point, which I've already alluded to, 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 to be created is to have to begin by nature. To have to begin is to have to be in motion and therefore undergo process. Whereas he says, quote, to become accustomed over ages to divinity, which is your goal. Okay, that's good. Maximus accepts that for sure. But there's a kind of another amazing sort of other horn of a dilemma. Maximus does this in the introduction to questions, to Thalassius. He He's interpreting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sort of in a Nyssa type way, mixed knowledge. You know, sin can't deceive you unless it presents itself as good, all that stuff that he, he takes from Nissa and, and some others. But he makes this remark at the end of that whole interpretation where he says, and in fact, maybe the reason why God in that story commands Adam and Eve to, to not partake of the tree at all is because it's impossible for humanity to know the truth of the visible creation unless it knows it precisely as God does so that we must first become God in order to know creation. And in the knowing of creation, creation itself is perfected. Okay, so that's the dilemma, though. With Irenaeus, on the one hand, we need to first be created in order to become God. That's the more typical way of doing theosis. But just as true is it that we really can't do that without error, deception, ignorance, stupidity, and therefore misinterpretation, and then the passion stir up, in other words, without sin, unless we already are God. You can't really know creation and therefore become perfectly created unless you're already God. So this is the dilemma. Now, at this point, I, and I explicitly raise in the, in the chapter against myself in this reading, so what am I saying? Am I Are we saying here that evil is somehow necessary? It's ingredient to God's creation? Like, is this a pseudo-Gnostic type thing? And actually, there are some Gnostic elements in it. I'm not going to lie. More or less, there are Gnostic elements in the New Testament. But it's not like a kind of abstract and personal law called evil in a Manichaean way that God has to sort of wrestle with in order to finally produce the product. It's the kind of necessity that I think is only familiar and interpersonal relations. Anybody that's a parent knows one of your kids might need something that the other one does not need. And yet, you, because you know the person, you know your child, you know your daughter, you know your son, you know that they do need that. Like they need a little extra attention tonight because something happened and I just do. But you might know the other one actually doesn't want your attention <laughs> when that same thing happens. Well, what's the difference? Isn't that a difference in sort of parental, like, you know, philosophy? Well, no, it's it's that the parental philosophy can't account for the particularities of the persons that you're actually trying to deal with. And that's where I end up going in that chapter is saying, you know, what we need to eventually realize is in all this sort of talk of persons, the person of Christ is central. Um, Christ doesn't incarnate in any, in, in any 
person or spirit or through them without the assent of the person, much like Mary, right? All this stuff is that really what we, we often forget is that God's project in creation isn't to create a wonderful organization of essences or a hierarchy of things. It's not a world order. It's an array of faces. It's actual people. It's way more complicated. What is a perfect person? We can talk about a perfect human being, and you can get some, right, with Aristotle or something, you can get to a certain degree of what a human excellence or virtue is, but really you're sort of abstracting from any particular human being, usually, when you do that. If I ask, what what is, what is a perfect me? Well, <laughs> by definition, since I don't, my who, my person, my identity doesn't have any idea or definition or formula, there is no formal perfection to a person. That's the that's where the heart of the dilemma really lies. On the one hand, to begin at all, or to be created is to begin, therefore to have to go through process to become God. On the other hand, if you don't already have the knowledge of God, you're going to mistake everything that you encounter in that process. How will, will any particular person get from point A to point Z? Well, there's no formula for that, because Z is the perfection of every person. Right. So it's just, so these are, I'm just kind of giving a taste of like, this is the sort of wrestling with like, so no wonder when you look back from Maximus's perspective, on the one hand, you see Jesus Christ and the person of Christ in whom all extremes meet. That is the true beginning, which is identical to the true end. That is the work of God's creation, as he explicitly says in Revelation 3.14. But also, you know, you're looking at the beginning of the world, cosmic, you know, the Big Bang, I don't know, cosmic evolution, planetary formation, and, and all of this is the ubiquity of death and, you know, survival of the fittest. And you're kind of like, man, it kind of looks like everything is sort of already fallen from the start. Like, but that means that's not our true beginning. So that's the kind of this, I don't know if I've explained it very clearly, but this is sort of the, this is the dilemma and the dynamism of the, as a quote unquote, project of creation as incarnation which is also therefore deification. That's the whole work of God. And that, no, you don't need evil in some sort of abstract way as a built-in law of necessity or something like that. But you do need God attentive to what it will take to bring every single last creature in person to their end, their perfection. And that is not reducible to any law. That's only able to know through interpersonal actual experience. Right? And so that's that's why I think in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul envisages the end there after a sort of hymn to love by saying, then I, you know, I will know him even as I am known. That's the end. How do you reduce that to any law, right? Mm -hmm. That it is the person participating in their own creation. And yes. That it, and that as a person, this is a real personhood. That is, yeah, that yeah. it's a person on the order of being in the image of God. So there is no set end to this, and there is no, as you're describing, you can't describe this in formal terms, mm -hmm. but the way that the early church is describing this in Irenaeus is that the, the term spirit, you know, yeah. it is the, the life, the breath of God, but at the same time, it's the spirit of the living being that is brought to life and being brought to the image of God, so that there truly is then, uh, I mean, this is, isn't it, Origen that talks about there is a kind of child likeness that we, I mean, we all obviously begin there. Yeah. Uh, 
and and we understand that's not our end that's that's hardly i i you know i can look back at my own life and look at myself as kind of a little creature that you know you you just kind of uh you're you're controlled by things you certainly have the potential of this this fullness but that potential then the uh, that is brought alive then mm-hmm. in the the gift of the holy spirit that is the the image of god is brought to its fullness in the incarnation uh yes. and and in that's what salvation is is the image is being made complete yes exactly which you 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 almost quoted right there you know again uh, from colossians 3 you know, 9 through 11 there i mean it's that you are being conformed to so you will receive the image and you'll become you know him and in that state christ is and is in all things you know that's and that's after he's given that what you just said, like the work of the spiritual life right sever off all these things and bury them you know hatred greed etc which is idolatry and and so you're and, and, and you throw off the ancient man bury him right kill him even is, is one way to render that you kill the ancient man and when you do you you let come forth the true man who is christ who was being formed in you according to galatians right and and i'm at, I'm at pains you know until christ be formed in you and so this and, and what's so important about this is that this does introduce and i kind of like in a sort of like you know abstract somewhat arid terms in the first part of the book describe the perichoresis or the interpenetration or the reciprocity or even symmetry between you know, christ's two natures but this is something that maximus applies to deification you know, is is as you said, right? As as the creation of spirits, we contribute to our own creation. But that's already that's like another way to put the same. I was speaking about the dilemma in, a, in like kind of a cosmic way, but you can do it exactly as you're doing it. And Maximus does do this, where you have another dilemma on the level of your person, because on the one hand, you're made to be nothing but totally free, like completely spiritualized in that deeper sense, not just immaterial. But the synthesis and the total freedom to where you're ruled by nothing that's simply uh without intention without desire without rational desire right everything is fully subject and like conscious to you which is something that in this life we rarely ever experience uh, except in those flitting moments of beauty and whatnot and love but there's already a dilemma right because the very fact that you have to be created and so you have to begin and you have to do the process means that your very beginning is marked by a sort of, at least on your part, um, lack of intention, consciousness, certainly no free desire. I mean, you didn't choose to be born. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so to, to, to sort of borrow Heidegger, right, you're sort of thrown in to this existence. And so, but that's already in the church fathers. This, and certainly in Maximus, he often juxtaposes our freedom, proedrisis, with with like ananki you know necessity and it's not and that's what that's i try to make a case as well i'm doing a lot of things in that chapter obviously it's kind of biting off quite a lot but one of the things i try to say is you know some of the remarks you'll make about the body that might seem disparaging or the sort of like you know it's easy to write that off as like oh you know he's just sort of this weird monkish you know body hater and you know i don't know you know that's hard to say all the time but i do think in in his case at least there's actually a much deeper point at work there, which is that any body that is not directly and immediately sort of, as it were, at one with the freedom of the spirit is not even yet a true body. 
It's not the body of First Corinthians 15. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the kind of dilemma on the personal level or individual level, maybe I should say it that way, because um, in a way we're moving from becoming person or individuals to per- true persons, which are they're not the same. Um, but it's it's you have to begin, you have to be in order to be free. It seems through the normal course of things, you first have to be before you can choose and desire and wish and try and learn. And but at the same time. If your very being should be spirit, should be free, mm-hmm. then you need to at some point be able to choose or freely assent to or contribute and participate in your own being. And for yeah. Maximus, we start to do that in baptism. Mm-hmm. Because here we have a birth from above. He, famously, if anyone wants to look, it's in uh, Ambiguum 42. Famous, he talks about Christ's four births. Gregory of Nazianzus mentions three births, but then he actually adds a fourth, and that's this, this occasion for Maximus to go off on, what are the four births? He's born from Mary, you know, he's he's baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, he's deified, but there's this other birth that Gregory mentions as primordial type birth, and, and he says by the end of it, he says, actually, we only distinguish these things in thought, but in fact, they're all one and the same, which is a mind-boggling, <laughs> if you take that seriously, what he's saying is, I know how you, I know the order phenomenologically in which you experience yourself in your own life. Mm-hmm. It looks very clear. You were born at your birth date. Then you grew up, and, you know, depending on where you are, but you choose God in some way, or maybe even choose to be baptized. You're born from above. There there we go. Mark's, that's the next part in the, the timeline. And then, you know, hopefully if you live the life of virtue and theosis and, and following Christ, you know, you die and general resurrection, you'll be deified, right? And like, one, two, three. Mm-hmm. you're sort of successively born but actually for maximus the true birth of the spirit again it's not it's not subject to the strictures of time and seriality right. and sequentiality the only thing it's subjects to is god's actual will which doesn't need to follow any particular order it just needs to follow the order that's going to take for you to become you so the, and, the yeah this is hippolytus is it that talks about the crucifixion as the inauguration of the incarnation and yes. that it folds it goes backwards and forwards yes exactly one one thing i like to use is sort of like you know the incarnation in the middle of time is sort of like you know this is an analogy so it's going to be weak but it's like a pebble you drop it and the ripples go out in all directions just mm-hmm. the difference here would be the very the very creation of the water itself as it ripples out almost like the big bang i guess you could say almost in a way but but all, what's it all for? Why all this weirdness? Why is it just simply that we're kind of doing this metaphysical analysis or this logical or phenomenological analysis of like beginning and beginnings? No, it isn't. Ultimately, that that was negative. That was like preparatory. You can kind of see something weird's got to go on if it's going to be real. But what you get in the positivity and the true content revealed in the incarnation is that your true creation in Christ, Ephesians two ten, your true creation is nothing less than, as Maximus often says, birth by spirit according to Christ. That's his formula. He's got a few ways to put that. It's basically the same. Birth by spirit. And that's the true origin because the spirit, what does the spirit do quintessentially? It incarnates the Son. So you have the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and you receive that, you know, you participate in that in baptism and in other sacraments or whatever, you do that not simply so you get a power up like a power charge you do that because you receive the divine power to bring forth in you the word of god and when he comes forth in you he brings his entire divinity with him which deifies you then 
This is the mutual interpenetration of God and creation, which alone is the true work of creation. Everything now you're else, a person. Yeah. Yes. Now you're a person. Now you receive that new name. You're know, like George McDonald talking about. You know, now you receive right. the new name, uh, the one, the white stone. You know, and that that's the only thing. That's the only goal God subjects any process to. There's no general idea or order or law or necessity of process that God has. That would be another way to deny creation ex nihilo if we're going to get really down to it. Because now we're conceiving some abstract matrix or set of laws metaphysically that God has to contend with when he goes to create, so to speak. What's different between that and, you know, even though those are immaterial, what's the difference though really between that and then pre-eternal matter that God has to work with. Mm -hmm. There's no working with anything. The only thing he has to work with is his own goal. And his goal is nothing less. John 1, you know, Jesus came to give us power. And he, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Give you power to become what? Children of God, sons and daughters of God. That's the goal. The whole point of creation mm -hmm. is to raise children. This is the way I kind of stumbled my way into a, a deep appreciation of what you're doing ironically is through Slavoj Zizek and and of course what Zizek and Lacan and really even Freud are describing is how how there can be a person you know what what is personhood outside of Christ you know if that's a possibility mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what they're describing is is actually uh, the complete uh, deception uh, that is there in Freud and the fa phantasma of being there at my own birth, that is, that we project. And, and we have this, our, our whole picture is that we're, we're formed or shaped or human personality is, is constructed on a deception, a necessary lie. And so what they're really describing is the human person. Uh, ultimately, it is the death drive it is nothingness, it is the dynamic of death and nothingness that is at play in the tripartite picture of the person in which they all then, Lacan and Zizek especially, have a deep appreciation of Romans 7. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. that Paul has just described, oh, here is the person as they exist he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. He doesn't. And then we get into chapter eight, and suddenly, who who is the person? Well, so we are in the place of Christ. So the tripartite self is actually a description of the participation in the Trinity. And the self before that is in some way of being cut off from it, that participation or the imagined uh being imagined being cut off you know the the self apart from god so so once you once you do that and you picture salvation as this you know it's it's a process that in a sense i understand oh yeah we kind of all begin with the with the 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 at the beginning of that process in which creation ex nihilo it's very much a possibility that the nilo and the nothingness is at some way a dynamic at play in us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's what I call in that chapter false incarnation. Because if if it's so, I I kind of state again the objection bland, like boldly boldly to myself and say you know in that chapter like look if if creation is incarnation why is it that when I look around <laughs> it doesn't seem like the word of God embodying Himself and all the wonderful things that should imply 
It looks like marred, fallen, failed, stumbling creation. And in the temptation, I, I claim with Maximus is to think, oh, okay, so then I guess actually creation really isn't incarnation, or that's like a metaphor or something like that. That's sort of a nice thought. Well, maybe if we uncritically accept that what we experience here and now is in fact creation. Mm -hmm. The other possibility is that what we experience right now and call uncritically, unreflectively creation, just baldly and generically, isn't. And until it's the word of God always in all things, born through all things, it isn't really truly created. And so, of course, the question will arise, and you've already been talking about it. I love, I like the, I really like the dovetail with psychoanalysis and and uh, and Zizek, and there's so much there. And in fact, I would love your thoughts on uh, when you get to that chapter because you, I think you could bring a lot of this together. But it's, um, you know, Maximus in Ambiguum Six says uh, this world is like, uh, you know, in this world, sort of, we are, we are in a womb, swathed in darkness. Which is already an interesting image, right? Because you're not yet born. But you are. But you're not. It's this weird liminal space. And you're in darkness, right? It's like evocative of Acts 17. God's placed everyone in the world in darkness. They might reach out and grope for him. So that means you're already under deception. You're under forces and impulses you might not even be aware of that are determinative for you. Um, in lot in really important ways, they're not absolutely determinative because that's that's the work you can do, you know, uh, in order to uncover and disinter these things. But nevertheless, they already as are there from the beginning. And and he also says though that the word is likewise swathed in darkness. In his image, there he's actually talking about uh, you know Mary with Jesus in in her womb, and then John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, and it's like the meeting of the wombs. And he's like, this is the world. And so the word the word is is sort of as it were uh, gestating in all things like a seed, right? Like 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 he is in a like a womb. But so are you, and it's and you can't really be born unless he's born, and vice versa. He's not fully and truly born until he's born in you and in everything. So yes, this experience that we have now, there are see why it's not simply an absolute repudiation in a kind of crudely gnostic way of all things is because the 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 logi the lo, you know the word of god is in everything there's the seed of the good in all mm -hmm. so it's not that anything is totally bereft of goodness it's just that it's also gestating and needs to be born and so so but all of that to say one of the implications theologically and i think spiritually for this view and it's a way that I think we can start to dovetail bringing connections with some of these other disciplines and other uh, traditions of thought is to say, if creation's dynamism and logic and, e and eventuation, like it's happening, it's occurring, is incarnation, that also means the, the, that we have the power to incarnate delusion. Yes. And that's, and that, Maximus goes, I love it. Uh, it's also in that introduction to, to the questions. It's, it's a remarkable introduction. But he says, he, he he defines evil twice. And the first one kind of sounds like what you'd expect, privation theory, right? Like, okay, evil has nothing in itself. It's not an essence. It's not a nature, blah, blah, blah. He goes through all Aristotle's categories. Like, it's none of these. But then he says, evil is the irrational motion founded on an erroneous judgment, the irrational motion of the soul. 
right? So now again, we're in movement. You can't be and not and, and not be in movement. So you're already moving. You're not neutral in a moving train, right? Like you're always moving. Mm-hmm. Um, if you exist, you're moving. So the question is, your movements. What are they bringing into being? Is it true incarnation? Or is it some sort of false delusion? And so what we can actually do precisely because the potency of creation and the form of God's creation is his incarnation always in all things, precisely for that reason, we can falsely, we can also falsely incarnate our own total errors and deceptions, principle of which, although not ex- it's never excluded, I mean, deception is, is, a, is a web, it's a network, it's always mutually implicating other deceptions. Principle, though, perhaps of which is your ignorance of yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't really know who I am. There's some good reasons for that, and some really bad reasons for that, and some unconscious reasons for that. But nevertheless, I don't know who I am. And part of that is I don't know God, because how could I really know who I am unless I know God? But then if I don't know God and I don't know myself, I don't really know the world either. I don't have that perfect knowledge, which Maximus says in that same uh, introduction he says in the end the deified mind will know god or no creation exactly in the way god does which is an amazing thing to say because the way god knows creation is as his own will mm-hmm. uh, so unless you know creation and that on that level through total love like almost as it were extensions of your very desire no disconnect whatsoever then you don't really know creation which means you're ignorant of it which means that's a condition within which you are moving which means you can cut I can I can imagine all kinds of things about who I truly am and I can try to bring it into being by giving my person to it my existence in hypostasizing my own delusions to be and your I own creator bring my own creator in a bad way and uh-huh. deify creation in the wrong way even though they're predicated on the very fact that those are there are there is a seed of truth in that I am supposed to become, in a sense, contributor to my uh, to my own creation. I am supposed to, in a sense, see the world become the body of God, but it isn't now. And so since I'm ignorant of that, I try to bring things, I try to embody and incarnate things, and in fact, I try to get you to, to conform to the picture I have of the world and of myself, my interpretations of everything. And maybe even who God is. Is he like a tyrant? Does he just mm-hmm. damn people because of his will? I mean... And start enacting these things as if as if that's true. So the world, at the end of the day, the world we experience right now isn't yet the true world. It's this mixture of true and false incarnation. And the beautiful like that. way that the beautiful way this resolves, and this is where I think the hope bursts through, is that means in fact, in actual fact. And again, this is already happening in the spiritual life. And again, I see this already in Colossians three, especially. Our salvation includes, by necessity, also destruction. The destruction, not just of our ideas, but of the ideas we've started to embody ourselves, in ourselves, through ourselves, and the world around us. And that starts to put a whole new spin on the judgment of God, the divine judgment, which is coming and which really should already be happening. Maximus says this wonderful thing. I've said this before, but I'll just cap it on this one. He's discussing Jonah, the story of Jonah. He's allegorizing it like crazy. And he says at one point, you know, he understands Nineveh to be, (laughs) you know, he says Nineveh is every soul. (laughs) It's also the whole world. It's also the church, right? It's it's everything. Nineveh is is the evil soul, you know, the corruption of the church, the corruption of the world. And he says, you know, in in, in chapter 3, verse 4, there's a point at which God finally seems to have had enough. And he says, in three days' time, you will be destroyed. 
no more conditions like earlier in the book like you need to repent or else you're gonna be restored so it's like an absolute thing and he and maximus says someone will raise the objection how is it that god seems to announce an unconditional destruction and yet nevertheless of course we know the end of the story is they repent and he relents and he says i tell you that the same city was both destroyed and saved oh, that's wonderful <laughs> The, and, and what what is that but the death and the resurrection yeah i have been crucified with christ yes. i no longer live but christ lives within me that yes. there is a necessity for a death yes. uh, of a certain kind for there to be a participation fully in the resurrection oh that's beautiful that's beautiful mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i like that origin has this really cool uh idea i can't remember exactly where it's from it might be from his uh the homilies on the psalms but he talks about how um you know he's asking god to come in you know completely demolish the babylon in my soul with all of its you know sins and malice and confusion and cause the evil city that i helped to build to crumb to crumble completely and come and you know uh rebuild yeah. what was overturned and in the place of the babylon which had been constructed before builded me instead your city and make the governing power of my heart jerusalem the holy city of my god you know that's not verbatim but it's, it's something like that that's beautiful i like that forging plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.